0: So uh, it's going to be a long time, um, and the section that I'm handing out is the continues the section on the extent of the atonement. Um, after we get through this chapter, there's only about one, two more pages left, and we'll be done in the chapter on the death of Christ. But I'm going to add an appendix, appendix C. We already have appendix A on the Trinity from last year, appendix B on um, the Son of Man and the Son of God. Appendix C is going to be more of an in-depth discussion of this business of the limited versus unlimited atonement debate that's gone on in church history, just so we understand some of the issues that are involved there. Actually, it turns out that I think the debate is um, a a disease of how we define words and don't ask the right questions and come up with these things. But nevertheless, uh, we do want to address it, because from time to time, Um, it's been an issue that's uh, split churches in the Harford County area, so uh, I think it behooves us to just understand where the issues are. And most people that split a church over something like that usually don't know what they're talking about anyway. They just get on one side or the other and follow the leaders. So it's not an easy issue to deal with, and I I think it's appropriate to spend a few nights in in this appendix that will be on I'll supplement what we're doing now tonight. Let's have a word of prayer to begin. Our Father, we're thankful once again for your grace, that your unmerited favor toward us, bestowing upon us salvation, bestowing upon us the blessings of sanctification and the blessings for all eternity, not the least of which is possession of the Holy Scriptures. We thank you for the illuminating ministry of the Spirit, who is also the author of those scriptures. And tonight we ask that you would open our eyes to the content of this most uh, important and central event in cosmic history, the death of your Son. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, again, just to kind of warm up to the subject, we are looking... At the event of the death of the king. And as we said again and again, and I hope we're getting this point over, that you cannot, you cannot talk about any piece of Scripture without relating it to the whole of Scripture. So when we're talking about something like the death of the king, we have to ensconce that event, envelop it, with understanding from the rest of the scriptures. And we don't do that. We wind up always going off in the Thule's on some theological tangent or you know, getting sucked up into rank unbelief. So the cross of Christ, as we've seen, um, cannot be understood properly apart from going back to scripture over and over again. And we've seen down through church history uh, different views. We've seen what we call the satisfaction view. We've seen the human influence view. And we've seen the so-called government view. And these views are attempts by men to understand what's going on here, what's going on at the cross. And we said the satisfaction view... Can be characterized as explaining the fact that the cross is doing work before God. The satisfaction view has nothing to do with the satisfaction of man; it's the satisfaction of God. And so, whatever happened on the cross was directed toward God, not toward man. So this is a uh, a God view. This this relates the cross to what was happening with God. The human influence view says that uh, Jesus Christ's death on the cross is a witness of his dedication to his mission and so forth. So the human influence view is man-centered and has come down in church history to be characteristic of liberal churches. Liberal theology, usually uh, 99% of the time, Uh, explains the cross of Christ in in basically these terms. And then kind of a halfway house between the views was the government view that Jesus Christ died to show that God took sin seriously. And the problem with these two uh, events, and of course the government view is directed toward man too, it's a witness to man. The problem with those two approaches to the cross of Christ is that they leave salvation as something that is either trivial, because all we do is repent of our sin and God says, oh, goody, and just goes on from there. Um, Or they don't just treat sin seriously at all. So, these two views are very weak in that respect. But, As always, in the the big spiritual battle that goes on, there's always an element of truth in some of these things. Remember, Satan can't mislead unless he has truth. He has to have pieces of truth or his counterfeit doesn't look like anything. I mean, Satan doesn't come in with a name tag. And he always has elements of truth in what he uses to, to, to divert our attention. And there are elements of truth here. And what we always have to watch out as Christians is when we say that's a basically a, an unbelieving view, we always have to say, yeah, but in order for it to be attractive to Satan's agenda, it's probably got pieces of truth in it. So what are the pieces of truth in it? Well, we said the human influence view is very clearly taught by Jesus himself. If I be uh, put on the cross, I draw men to myself. So is there a human influence to the cross? Yeah. Were you influenced by the cross when you became a Christian? Yeah. Well, then didn't it influence you? Yes, it did. So, there is a human influence. But here's, here's the deal. The influence that it has exists only because of the satisfaction. It's because of what the cross does before God, where it has a bona fide influence on us, a godly influence on us. You see, the problem here, and this is a good illustration of, of biblical thought versus unbelief. This is an excellent illustration of this. Mr. Unbeliever can sit here and use these two words, human influence. Mr. Believer, sitting right next to him, can use the words human influence. Are they talking about the same thing? No, they're not. Absolutely not. Are they same vocabulary? Yes. Same language? Yes. Maybe even the same sentence structure? Yes. Does it sound the same? Yes. Does it mean the same thing? No. So this, and I'm sure many of you have had this frustration happen when you've been discussing the gospel with somebody. And it, you, you use the word, they use the word. But you know that what they mean by the word isn't what you mean by the word. So then you're sitting there and either have to spend hours where, you know, what is going on here? You know, you get into kind of a semantic slime where you're sliding all over the place and you can't come to grips with it. But you know somehow that what you're saying isn't being received at the other end the way you wanted it to be received. Well, here's an example of this. It goes on and on and on. So don't feel like the Lone Ranger when it happens. I mean, the apostles use words in the New Testament. And people read the New Testament and get it wrong. Even people who speak Greek and know the Greek vocabulary get it wrong. Because there's more to it than just vocabulary. There's a spiritual understanding that happens here. And it's that spiritual understanding, which really amounts to this, this diagram I keep drawing, that you have to surround all this with a biblical frame of reference. So if we have a biblical frame of reference, we can talk about the human influence of the cross. We are influenced because made in the image of God and having our hearts opened by the Holy Spirit's miraculous work, we are attracted to what Christ did for us on the cross. We may be ashamed that he had to do it for us, but that's part of repentance for sin. But thank God that he did it. And it's something we gave him praise for. And we are influenced. We're influenced to sing hymns about it. We're influenced to have communion about it. We're in all, influenced all across the board. So, there is such a thing as human influence that is believing. It's just that, that view can be radically different from what I just said. A liberal clergyman can get up in the pulpit and cite Jesus Christ's death on the cross as agony and go on and on and all the emotional words and get people all excited and so on emotionally. And he hasn't even touched the truth. It's just nothing but an emotional reaction. It looks great. It goes over well, but it spiritually is a zero. It hasn't even touched the truth yet. So, the second one, the government view, is also that way. It's, is God demonstrating the fact that he, he's a smart ruler? Yeah. But how does he demonstrate he's a smart ruler? Because Christ died for sin, that's why. So, this is like the human influence. This one uh, can also be spoken of by an unbeliever can be spoken of by a believer. Both use the same words, both use the same sentences, and both mean utterly different things. Greasy. This is very greasy stuff, but it's the way human conversation goes. Now, last time we hurriedly at the end... Oh, one other thing. Uh, to to illustrate the, the biblical frame of reference, what did we pull out of the Old Testament framework that we spent Years, the last three or four years, developing. What two great events can you go back to to give your mind a picture? Because oftentimes when you catch yourself in these situations, even in your own uh, soliloquies with yourself, um, <clears throat> you, it's useful to slow down, back up, and say, wait a minute, let me go back and think through a biblical story. And there are two great biblical stories from the Old Testament to think through, to help appreciate this cross work of Christ. One of those is the flood, and the other one is the exodus. Now why do those two events help? Because both of them are events when God judged and when God saved. And both of them have judgment salvation back to back. There's no such thing in Scripture of salvation without a corresponding judgment. Think about it. Every time God delivers, it's delivering from something. And He only delivers some people from that something, and the rest of the people get clobbered. And the flood is an example of that. He saved only eight people. And everybody on this planet was destroyed. There was judgment upon the unsaved, and there was salvation for the saved. And it was done through water and the ark. Now, in that situation, was there a genuine saving? Or was it just a human influence? Well, people weren't too impressed with Noah's ark building. Obviously, they didn't win many people to the Lord. And for a hundred and some odd years, the guy sat out there and his family, and they built this thing. Maybe they hired contractors to do it. I don't know, but they built it. But what did it influence? There were only eight people that were influenced enough to go into the ark. So, in that situation... The influence came because it was a real, the people who were influenced by it, really believed in a real judgment to come. Who was it that put blood on their doors over here in the Exodus? People who were influenced, trusting that God was going to judge. And I better put blood on my door, or I'm not going to make it through this thing. So, these two events give you the background for the cross. The cross is a similar thing. The cross is Christ taking judgment upon Himself. But like the ark and like the exodus, the, uh, the blessings of what that work is all about don't come unless we enter by faith. That is the entry. Had to enter the ark by faith. Had to put blood in the door in the exodus by faith. And if you didn't, too bad. And the issue is, between the saved and the unsaved in both cases wasn't race it wasn't whether they were male or female gender had nothing to do with it educational level had nothing to do with it a person's personality had nothing to do with it there was only one thing that had to do with it did they believe enough to do it or didn't they nothing else mattered only that so those are good pictures by way of background. Now as an extension of this idea of the government idea, the last thing I wanted to say in that section about the nature of the atonement is found in the bottom of page 90. And that is that the atonement provides us a wonderful illustration that we can dredge up and use when we're caught in that old classical dilemma of the problem of evil. And you remember that this, this is the most potent attack Satan uses against the Christian faith. I am convinced of this. Evolution is strong and powerful, yes. But I think the evil problem is the one that is the most powerful satanic attack ever waged against the gospel. And you have got to come to grips personally with this thing. If not in your own life, to just ride out the storms in your own personal life, but to master shock. Because all the human tragedies that happen, personally, in your family, uh, with loved ones, uh, all involve a shock. I mean, all of a sudden it happens. And something bad happens. And everybody's walking around in a big daze in shock. And the only way to get out of that and control the shock and minimize the shock is to have a worldview that's big enough to take the heat. And if we don't understand what the biblical issue is and the issue of suffering, we're not going to be able to handle it when it comes. And we have to think it through. It can't be some Pavlovian reaction. It has to be a thought-through reaction. And the problem with this is you have to pray about this and study scripture and think it through before the crisis hits. And once the crisis hits, that's not the time to be thinking this all through. It's too late now. You know, took it, Put notes away in the third shelf of the book room somewhere. Um, you know, I'll get those out kind of thing. Uh, that's not the time to do it. The time is now. The time is whenever you have time before the Lord to think this thing through. Prepare yourself for when these things happen. And remember, in the Christian view, what's so encouraging is that we're not the ones that got the problem. It's the other guys that got the problem. We're doing great. Again, review. Over here is Mr. Unbeliever. He's got the problem because he's always got an evil Universe, A universe that has evil in it, he always has, and he always will, because evil is normative for him. It's normal to have death, it's normal to have suffering, it is normal to have disintegration and decay. All those things are normal. There never can be conceived a universe without those. That's the way it is. Always and forever. And you can talk New Age all you want to, which is nothing more than the old age. But because we have such lousy historical memories, it comes around for the 108th time. People oh, ooh, that's new. No, it's not new. Just the short memories. Been around since Genesis 3. Evil is normative, according to this position. But the catch is, if it's normative, you never escape it. There is no salvation from it. So next time you're in this situation, maybe in more of a discussion with an unbelieving friend, just realize that you need to really pray for them. You don't have to pray to defend the gospel. They need the ones to defend. It's such a stupid viewpoint. Now coming over here, the uniqueness of the Bible is that the Bible says that there was a universe without death, decay, suffering, and death and one day there'll be another one without decay, suffering, and death. And that being so, it means that the period between the Fall and the judgment is abnormal. The mixture of good and evil is an abnormal and temporary condition, brought on by the creature in his rebellion and resolved by God intervening in judgment, because in judgment he separates the good from the evil. Now. Why does God? Why did God organize history this way? Why didn't He have a history without evil in it? Could have. Why did He choose to go create a universe with a history in it that involved creature rebellion and all the rest of what goes with it? Why did He do that? The Scriptures give us no answer other than the glory of God. And people can say, oh, great God. You know, you He get a thrill out of watching little babies die of cancer or something, you know? Does that glorify him? And people will say that to you. Maybe you thought it for yourself. But the ultimate way that you respond to that is to go back to those biblical passages like when God came to Job. And Job, you remember, went through the ringer and he wanted answers and what happened when God finally spoke to Job at the end of the book? Who had the questions and who had the answers then? God was the one who was asking the questions. Job was the guy who was supposed to give the answers. Totally turned around. And remember I said when we went through that, it sounds cruel for God to have done that. And I said at the time that I think the reason God came on so heavy... Is because it was the only way when you're in emotional shock and your feelings are taking over. You, you can't approach God without having something functioning in your mind. Because faith has to have what? Faith has to have content. So God never comes to us with our brains turned on the off position. So therefore God had to get Job Thinking once again, he was yeah, he was hurting, but he had to get to the point where those emotions weren't dominating his soul. And the way God chose to approach Job was, now you sit down there, mister, and I'm going to ask you the questions. Sit. I have a hundred question quiz for you right now. I don't care if you're hurting, you have warts all over your body or whatever you have. You sit down there and you answer me. And all of a sudden he's saying, yes sir, no sir. And he comes out to the end and he he realizes that he was all screwed up. But the process that God used was never to answer Job's question. That's the interesting thing. Job's questions that he's raising aren't answered directly. They're postponed, they're put off, because God says, you're going to trust me. I am the creator. I am the potter. And you are the pot. And I make you the way I want to make you. And that's my right. And if you have a problem with that, we can't go any further. You accept that, and we'll, we'll have some conversations. But the basis of the conversation isn't going to be me you dictating to me. The basis of the conversation, I'm going to tell you. And when we get the rule one straight, then we can have a nice family chat. But until you are willing to accept me for what I am, we're not going to do any business. Now that is very offensive, but it's comforting, because it breaks through all the crud, and God comes in his glory, and we see who he really is. And then we do business with God, because now we have respect for God. We acknowledge his authority. So, when we deal with these things, we are face-to-face with God telling us, basically, trust me. That's what he basically said. That's the answer. Trust me. And so we have to sit back and say to ourselves, with the kind of Creator we have, we have every reason to trust Him because He has thought it through completely. There's a complete reason for our suffering. He hasn't chosen to reveal that reason or reasons to me but because of who he is I am willing to stand back and say I can't get to the re- I can't touch the reason here but this tragedy that has happened in my life has rationality to it it's not an irrational accident and that is comforting what is totally discomforting is the horror of having a tragedy happen and it's meaningless. That is devastating. When there is absolutely no reason what for What Put yourself in that position, think about it for a minute. I was listening to uh, Chuck Colson um, this morning on the tape, and he reiterated something that had, uh, I had read about World War II. And um, the, one of the Nazi, I forget which commandant it was, one of the Nazi commandants of the concentration camps, and I think it was in Romania where this happened, uh, the Jewish slaves were uh, in the concentration camp and they, their, their work was to produce petroleum for the German army, the Romanian oil fields. And those of you who have studied military history. Remember one of the most famous raids the Air Force did, Army Air Corps in World War II, was the raid on Ploesti. And they made all kinds of navigational problems and bombers fell out of the air by the carton and all kinds of Lost a lot of air crews on those raids. But when the raid was done, there were no more Romanian oil fields left. So now here's this commandant of a concentration camp and he's got all these Jewish slaves, so what do we do with them? I mean, not, We can't get oil now, So he came up with an idea. He had read uh, a novelist, actually a Christian novelist who had told this story, about how to drive people crazy. And the way you do it is to give them absolutely meaningless work to do. Now, the interesting experiment that this commandant, this cruel Nazi commandant did with his Jewish slaves, these people were starving, but they had survived. They were whipped, they were beaten, they were starved, Uh, they had horrible working conditions, horrible living conditions, but they survived. They were surviving people. He broke them in two weeks, every one of them. And you know what he did? He said, here's a shovel, and I want you to go out and dig dirt at the end of the warehouse. I want you to fill up the sandbags and take them to the other end of the warehouse and empty them. Okay, so they did that. Next day they come back, I want you to take a shovel, dig up that dirt, put it in a sandbag, and take it down to the other end, and we'll dump it. In three weeks, most of these people had gone insane or had committed suicide. The very same people that had endured all the horrors of the concentration camp up to that point. Why did they die? Because suddenly there were no reason to do anything It was absolutely meaningless. And this guy got a big thrill out of saying, Oh, gee, you know, that works. Now I don't have to gas them. We got a new way to kill Jews. We can kill people by giving them meaninglessness. So we as human beings aren't made for the meaningless because we're made in God's image and God is a rational God. So our heart cries out for an answer and what happens And nine times out of ten we don't know why we suffer. Remember when we went through suffering? We said there's seven or eight biblical reasons for suffering. But in the, behind those reasons there's only one and that is we trust the God who has created us and saved us. Now, as a picture of how great he is in dealing with evil and as an encouragement to us the cross is one step further that job never knew of the cross is an advanced revelation that shows us a little bit of eternity because what the cross did it resolved an unresolved dilemma that came to the New Testament out of the Old Testament. And that unresolved dilemma was, how could God be just and holy and the one who forgave the sins of his people? How could that happen? You know, you think, put yourself in an Old Testament saint's position. Now, they're sitting here wondering, well, wait a minute, Yahweh is absolutely holy. How can I ever be forgiven before him? Let's turn to Psalm 143 because this is cited in that very same passage in Romans. And you'll see where the psalmist is struggling with this. And think about what you would have done if you had known just the holiness of God and yet you had also heard that He forgives. And you... You were a literate person. Your mind hadn't been destroyed by watching too much television. And in Psalm 143, you have a verse here. In verse 2. This is quoted by Paul in the Epistle of Romans. So Paul knew about this tension in the Old Testament. So he goes back to this Old Testament psalm. And what does it say? And keep in mind that here's a psalm of David... And David says in verse 2, please don't enter into judgment with thy servant, for in thy sight no man living is righteous. As in Romans 3. So let's go back to Romans 3 now, where Paul, speaking out of this understanding of the Old Testament and where it left everyone. In verse 26 of Romans chapter 3, Paul points to this resolution. He says, using words that you would swear came out of the government theory of the atonement, he says, for the demonstration of His righteousness at the present time, notice, at the present time, not before time, here's a progress of history, God's revelation increases as time goes on. At this present time, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. How could God do that? He did it because somehow the sins of the sinner were transferred onto the cross and received their proper judgment. And, of course, the the darkness came across so nobody saw what was going on. But in some fantastic way, the cross resolved this whole issue. And so sin was transferred to the cross and judged on the cross. That's the substitutionary, vicarious atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right here, the judgment happened. And, and as when that benefit comes to you and to me, it means never, for all eternity, will we ever face a judgment for our salvation. Judgment for evaluation of our works, yes. But not as to whether we're saved or not saved. That has taken place right here. So... The answer is, has God been, is God just? Has he compromised in any way his integrity? The answer is, no, he hasn't. God has holiness here. He has integrity here. Nothing has been compromised. So that's protected. But has have sinners been saved? Has there been salvation? Yes. And that's been checked. Has it been resolved? Yeah. In three hours, it was resolved. So, here we have an example of how what can plague believers for centuries, centuries of thought and prayer and struggle with an issue. And in one afternoon, it was all over. Now, if God can resolve such a fundamental, apparent contradiction, so apparently easy, like he did with a cross. Can we trust him to solve the other things so that in eternity when we see all the cards laid out on the table we're going to be just as amazed as the first believers were when they comprehended what had happened in the death of the king. Wow! He resolved the problem. This is amazing. Could any man have predicted it would have been resolved this way? What? Remember our memory verse, Hebrews 11.3 that by faith we understand that the things which we see do not come out of the apparent causes. It was unpredictable. Our God is a God, a rational God, but He rationally surprises. He, he approaches history in utterly unpredictable ways, just to teach us again that we are not omniscient, we are not God, we cannot predict exactly how He's going to move. Where we can predict how he's going to move, and then we don't believe the prophecy, is when he promises us to do something, and then we don't trust him. It's ironic that in areas where he's absolutely predictable, we don't trust him. But then we fuss that he isn't going to do it the way we want to do it when we want to predict. So it's all backwards. That's how screwed up we all are. Okay. So now we've worked with the the, uh, nature of the atonement, and we want to move tonight to the extent of the atonement. So if on page 92, we're going to get into this, and I think the best way of doing it is we're going to look at two verse chains. Middle of page 92, there are two lines of verses there, and I want us to spend a few moments this evening going through these verses. Um, If you'll go to Matthew 1. I'm going to, in the first few verses, we're going to go through the verses that are cited by folks who believe in what they call the limited atonement. And by limited atonement, they mean that Jesus Christ died only for the elect. Okay? That's the statement. That is classical Calvinism. Some of you know it as Tulip. Total depravity, unconditional election, L, L, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. That five-letter acrostic. Keep in mind, however, that that Calvinism is a second and third generation development of Calvin. It's somewhat embarrassing to see the fact that Calvin never addressed some of the things that the Calvinists address and in at least one area, a shocking area actually, is in Calvin's definition of what faith is. A lot of people are they are they're frustrated because we have so much sin and confusion in Christian circles and they want to straighten out the church and so they say that you really don't believe unless you uh, you totally dedicate your life to the Lord and this and that. And the emphasis is all on what I do I'm going to dedicate my life to God. I'm going to promise I'll never do it again, and this and that, and all the rest. And it, it actually comes out of the second third generation Calvinism. Puritans in New England did this. Um, those of you who study church history know that the Puritans, they would write five to 600 page books to find out whether they were of the elect or not. And how were they supposed to tell whether they are elect or not? Whether they were successful in life, whether they lived the Christian life perfectly, and this and that. And they were always morbidly introspective, trying to figure out whether they were in the elect or not. They were trying to have faith in faith, is the problem there. Well, when you read Calvin, that's not what he said. Calvin's definition of his faith is assurance. So if I'm assured of my salvation, I'm not going to be looking to see whether I'm in the elect or not. Because by definition, I'm already looking, then I don't have assurance. And if I don't have assurance, then I don't believe. So whatever happens when we trust the Lord... See, it's a miracle. That's why it's so hard, people. It's not that, it's not that we're... Um, it's just that people like to fight about this. It's just really hard stuff. When the Holy Spirit brings us to Jesus Christ, there is a miracle that goes on in our soul. And we can't dissect all of what... I mean, we can't even dissect what he does in the natural realm. I mean, how does life start? How does life progress? We don't still know. You know, every decade we learn more and more things about the cell. Gosh, when I first learned biology, it was the cell wall and the nucleus and a few chromosomes running around. Now... You go into the cell, and my son, who's in medical school now, tells me, Dad, it's this, 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 and this. And then this is going going on. And there are enzymes here, and they're doing this, and they're doing that. Holy mackerel. You wonder, how did one little cell make it? It's so complicated. And, And we're struggling to do that. Now, when you come over to the atonement people, we're trying to understand how God miraculously works in our heart in an instant of time, to take us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And the New Testament says, in 2 Corinthians 4, it says, whatever this work is that he does, and if you've had a family member, trust the Lord, and you see this, or you've had a friend of yours, trust the Lord, you know this something happens. But to explain what is going on in the soul, no one has, can do this. All we have, we're thrown back to the scriptures here. So, The scriptures we're going to look at now, in the next four or five verses, are going to be all verses that talk about Jesus dying for those who have believed. So, in Matthew 1, verse 21, it says, Mary speaking, and she will bear a son, or the angel speaking, she shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For it is he who will save who? The world? No. It says who will save his people. From their sins. So the object of the verb, and we can analyze it grammatically to get a little more precision to it. What we're doing is we're saying here's the verb to save. Now, what is the object of that verb? Save who? This says save his people. It doesn't say Gentiles, it doesn't say Romans, it says his people. Okay, Matthew 5 or let's, let's turn to Ephesians 2 verse 15 so lots of other verses but the, these are I'm just trying to show you that the the, the, um, the approach in Ephesians 2 it's talking about something that was accomplished in the atonement and it says, "...by abolishing in his flesh the enmity which the law of commandments contain in the ordinances, that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace." I might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near. Speaking of Jews and Gentiles. In verse 16, who is in the body? Believers or unbelievers? Believers. So again, Jesus Christ dies to do all this work. And all the work is being done upon believers. Ephesians chapter five, verse twenty-five. Again, a typical of, of the of the church. Um, what we're going to what we face here is, is Paul goes through the, the thing is the marriage analogy. Husbands love your wife, just as Christ loved the world. No, loved the church. So there's a peculiar a uh, series of verses throughout the Bible that repeatedly refer to the fact that Christ died in a very special way for those who believe. Um, let's go to Titus 214. In Titus 2, verse 14, it says, "...who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed, and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous of good deeds." He gave himself. There's the atonement, verse 14. So there's the saving work. "...who gave himself for whom? For us." Okay, I think you get the idea. Okay, so there's a chain of verses that are talking about Jesus Christ dying for those who believe. Now we're going to go back and we're going to look at some verses that say He died for the world. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15... Pretty unambiguous. It says verse fifteen, He died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore from now on we recognize no man according to the flesh and so on if we know him Christ according to the flesh yet we know him thus no longer. And verse 18 Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation namely that God was in Christ reconciling who? To himself. Believers only? Well, it says recognizing the world unto himself. So now we've got the same kind of verb save and what's the object of the verb? That's the world. Okay, let's go to 1 Timothy 2. Keep it, These are not the only verses, but we'd be here all night if we went through every single one. 1 Timothy 2, verse 6. It says, "Who gave Himself as a ransom for whom? For all." The testimony born at the proper time. So on goes on. So now the object is all. The object is the world. Chapter uh, same epistle, chapter four, verse ten. What does it say? For it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is Savior of only believers. No, Savior of all men. Okay, let's go to Titus 2:11. Next epistle. Uh, go through 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and then Titus. Then I come to Titus. 2.11. Now what does this say? It says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. So, here we are again. Not some men, not believers, not the church, but to all men. Now finally, one other verse, 1 John two two. why this has triggered debate. And it's not just one of these little theological things. Well, gee, how many uh, angels on the head of a pin or something? Um, There are some serious repercussions that can come out of this if you get on the wrong track. Let's, uh, Let's look at the limited side of the controversy for a moment. Now, let's look at some of the good things that are being said here. If Jesus Christ died to save the elect, and by the elect now I'm talking, I'm using that word synonymously with believer. I'm not meaning to get into all kinds of predestination arguments and so on today. Okay, just a title for believers. If God, if Christ dies for the elect or for believers, is he successful? Well, by definition, yeah. If he dies for only believers, then is his death wasted on unbelievers. Or said another way, if Jesus Christ dies for this person, this person, this person, this person, they're all believers, is has his work been frustrated or limited in somehow by man? No. Because he didn't intend to save all in the first place. Keep in mind, these are the Reformed people now. What are they big on? um, Sovereignty. And it's very important to second and third generation Reformed people that they defend the sovereignty of God to the third decimal place. And if God is truly sovereign, he can't be frustrated so reasoning backwards, if only, saved, if only believers are saved and there are lots of other people that wind up in hell without the benefits of the atonement, then God must have intended it to be that way in the first place. So Christ died only for the elect. See the line of reasoning? And the, the, their, their, their passion and interest is, is trying to say that God didn't intend to do something and then man frustrated it. And so God sits in eternity saying, well, 35%, that's not bad batting average. That's what they're trying to avoid. Winding up with a a God of history who's sitting there, "Mm, is he going to believe or not? That's what they're trying to deal with. Okay, It's a legitimate concern. Now, the other side who believe in salvation of in the world say, how in the, how, in, how, how in the world can you people who believe that Christ only died for the elect how can you be missionaries? How can you evangelize anyone? If in your heart of hearts you say to yourself well, I mean, he only died for the elect so only the elect are going to believe so it's up to God. So, why, why bother preach the gospel? I mean, after all, if we knew who the elect were, uh, the non elect were, we wouldn't even bother with them. Because they're not going to believe anyway. So, on this side of the fence, the concern is with evangelism. On this side, it's concerned with the, uh, we'll call it the integrity of the plan of God, or the consistency of. In the plan of God. I want to show you these two things. We're going to get into some stuff here. Tonight and the next night. Or the, in January. We're going to get into, and now you've seen why I have an appendix C on this stuff. Because there are some of you here tonight. That really would like to dig this out. And see what's going on. And others of you. just, If you just put up with the rest of us. Um, we'll go on. Um, but. I'm going to try to show this at four things in my notes in this chapter. We'll go into more detail in the appendix, but I'm going to say four things about the atonement. And I introduce them to you this way because I want you to realize that I'm saying this, trying to be very careful in what I'm saying. Trying to give due respect to all the scriptures that we've seen. The scriptures have these two themes in them. Now, we know enough of our God to know that we don't have a contradiction in Scripture. So, as always, we're dealing with sovereignty and responsibility again. And what was the thing we dealt with in the last event of Christ's life where well, you saw this happen earlier? We sat here, I remember, two or three nights of Q&A, and we went round and round with it. It was one, remember the life of Christ, and we dealt with impeccability. And what do we say about impeccability? Remember we had the two two phrases. Was Christ, which of these two sentences described the Lord Jesus during his lifetime? Was he able not to sin? Well, everybody says, yeah, he was able not to sin. Was he not able to sin? Well, I don't know about that one. If he wasn't able to sin, how could he have been tempted? But on the other hand, and remember I went through that and I gave you the two examples of two godly men facing off on that issue. But each one of them had a, had a different point in mind. And this is what I want to warn you about. When you get into stuff like this, people, don't jump on one side or the other just prematurely. I mean, you come to your own conclusions. But just understand that in nine times out of ten when you dig around deeply enough, you find out that we've got a lot of this going on. People on one side of the fence are concerned with this, people on the other side of the fence are concerned with this, and not the same issue. And since God is incomprehensible, meaning he is infinitely complicated, it might just give us pause to the fact that, you know, maybe there's truth on both sides of this thing. And we better be a little cautious about running in here, because well, obviously God doesn't have a problem, and we're the ones that have the problem. How do we understand what he has done in the work of Christ? So, tonight we're going to start with the first statement on bottom of page 92, all we're going to have time tonight for is the introduction to this. But I, I give you all that background because I want you to see that this is tough stuff, and most of you have slugged it out here over the last three or four years, and you've, you've got a good background, we've gone through enough of the framework with you, so you, you are, you're aware there's a progress of revelation, and as time goes on in scripture, God reveals more and more, and you've seen these debates before, you saw the impeccability issue, we went back with the call of Abraham, We had the remember we had election, and oh, I don't know about that, and we, we went in through that. And so you've been around this, you've been around the store here. This is you've been seeing things like this before. So don't freak out. We'll just take it step at a time. The first thing we want to say is that no matter what side of the fence you're on here, you have to agree on one thing that Jesus Christ's work on his cross is the only basis of blessing that can ever come to believer and unbeliever alike. Here's the deal. God has a character. He is sovereign. He is righteous, he is justice, meaning he is holy. And he has the other attributes. We'll just look at those right now. He's omnipotent and so on. That's his character. One part of his character is he's immutable and he's not going to change his character. So, that means that this quality about our God is never, ever going to be compromised. He also has another quality, I should have put it over here, his love. And we want to talk about that. Because one of the things in this debate is where is the place of the love of God in all this? Does God love the world? Yeah. Yeah. But see, even there we got a problem. Whose gospel says God so loved the world He gave His only begotten Son? John. And whose epistle said love not the world? John. Huh. What does that mean? God loved the world and we can't. Is that what he means? See, there's a finesse to Scripture. And this is why people throw it in your face and say, oh, well, you can read anything in the Bible. sure, idiots can always do that. But to read the Bible in the spirit with which it was written demands maturity in there. There's some tough stuff, as Peter said of Paul. This guy's hard to to understand. And when we get into these truths, we have to kind of approach it gradually and, and build up. So the first thing and the last thing tonight we want to get into is that if God loves the world... This love of God cannot be manifest unless at the same time this is protected. So when God loves, he's got to love in a holy fashion. You can't separate this attribute from this one and split God into pieces. It doesn't work that way. So, if God initiates, and God is a love of love, because what did we say grace was? Grace is God's initiative. God initiates, and, and what's a good picture of grace, by the way? The easy picture, a child can understand it. First element, first uh, dramatic revelation of grace in the Bible. It was in Genesis, when Adam and Eve were hiding in the bushes. Who opened the conversation? Adam, Eve, or God? It was God. Forever let this etch in our minds. It was God who opened the conversation. They were hiding in the bushes. They were terrified. They saw the holiness of God, and they knew, they dropped the ball, this is it, what are we going to do now? And God, They knew God's righteousness, but God in his love and in his grace said, hey. And he opened a conversation that led to their salvation, and God was the first soul winner. He won them. That was an evangelistic encounter right there in the garden. And it was God's love and his passion for those people that were sinful. Does God love you? Bet he does. Are we undercutting his love? In no way. What we're doing, however, is saying that that love is not promiscuous. It doesn't go in all directions. It goes in accordance with his character. And by the way, that's a great model for us. Because we live in a generation that defines love as you do it my way. And if you don't do it my way, you don't love me. A whole generation of school people raise this way. You don't love me, but you won't let me do what I want to do. No. Love, real love, has character behind it. And this is the great model of what real love looks like. God, in the cross, did set up the cross. He did set up the cross to save. He did set up the cross to bless all men. But He's going to do it such that His righteousness is never compromised. And that's why this leads to the most obnoxious most repulsive thing about our Christian gospel that just infuriates our non-Christian neighbors. How can you Christians have the gall to say that your religion is the only way? It's very simple. Because there's no way to approach God except on God's basis. We don't create the door and the wall. He creates the door, and he only has one of them there in the wall. So guess what? There's only one way to God. Dictated by his character and his being. God is not plastic, rubber, that can be moved around, changed. He's not a chameleon who takes on the color of our feelings. God has this holiness about him, will not compromise his holiness. He is just and he is the justifier of them that believe, not in whatever they want to. But he is just and justifier only of those who accept his door, which is the cross of Jesus Christ. There is no other way. If there was another way, he would tell us about it. And he wouldn't have risked his own son dying on the cross to do that. So, conclusion tonight, the atonement, bottom of page 92, the atonement is the sole legal basis of all grace. To abandon that is to split God into half On Love on one side is holiness on another, and you can't do that. Father, we thank you for your so great salvation. And as we take our our little childlike steps around to see and explore just the surface of what you've done for us, may your Holy Spirit give us an appreciation and admiration for your being, for your genius, for your grace, and for your love toward us. In Christ's name, amen. We have a few minutes, and so maybe we can... If I didn't make something clear or glued it up, too bad. Um, we're, we're we're trying to finish up now the death of Christ. And, of course, this raises all kinds of interesting issues when we get into the benefits of the atonement. Um, so are there any questions that you'd like to pursue? If we can't finish tonight, obviously we can try to incorporate that area in our, our January 20th. And, uh, yes, Debbie? Doesn't um, Well, uh, let me, let me, I, I'm, I'm trying to be fair to both sides of this conflict as I give you these answers because um, obviously in the notes I'm, I'm going to try to show what's good about both sides here uh, without winding up hopefully in a contradiction. Um, the answer to that question, and that's a classic objection to the limited atonement view, that it's unfair. That ultimately, someone could argue that, well, Christ didn't die for me. So I mean, hey, <laughs> what do you want from me? Uh, and besides, you, you, you know, you died for them, but you didn't die for me. Um, kind of thing. Classical Reformed theology usually answers that by saying that the basis of the condemnation of the person of the non-elect person is. The fact that he's a sinner, that he's he has sinned against God, and the justice concerns not with a pardon or even the offered pardon. The justice is is satisfied in a judgment of this person for their sin. And the person is objecting, saying Christ didn't die for him, Christ didn't have to die for anybody. Now you can counter that. By what you hinted at in your question well, yeah but once Christ died for some and not all, then don't we have uh, an iniquity going on here that makes sense and uh, it also is related to doesn't it, isn't it true not just of his justice that is limited in this kind of a thing but his love Uh, does not love everyone, you know, this sort of thing. Um, Limited atonement has uh, a certain compactness about it theologically. And I think that's why the second and third generation reformers took Calvin's teachings and tried to make um, a coherent system out of them and it's very systematic um, they feel their answer is that God's justice is not at all compromised by limited atonement because his justice is ex- expressed against sin and as a sovereign God he can choose uh, the judgment against sinners much like a human judge can spill out sentences and um, it's his prerogative to judge how he wishes. And without his grace, none of us would make it. Uh, and it's, it's left there. That's how usually it's just, just left. Your answer is left with that. Uh, and it strikes a lot of people, and has struck a lot of people in church history, as cold. Um, something lacking here. Something about compassion that we see in Scripture just doesn't seem to go. Um... The other side of the coin is that liberalism, liberal theology, has argued more than once that since Christ died for all men, there's no need to preach the gospel because all men are already saved. Now, this is the other extreme, and it's called universalism. The idea of universalism is that the gospel is not there to win somebody to Christ. It's rather the gospel is there to tell somebody that they're already good. They're already saved. They're already covered by the atonement. It's just an announcement of something's already happened. It's not the trigger to cause something to happen. Now, I'm not saying that every person who believes on unlimited atonement believes that. Of course not. I'm saying, though, that when you look at ideas of biblical history, it's good sometimes to look at your church history, because church history gives a sample of thousands and thousands of believers and what they did with an idea. And it gives you an idea of what that idea is going to do if it's let loose. Um, Historically, the missionary enterprise has come out of, what do you suppose, which side? Unlimited. Where the doctrine of unlimited atonement has has taken hold has generally spawned missions. Now, it's not totally... Compl- I'm simplifying here because I just want to see the essence of these ideas. Uh, because later on, hopefully, in the resolution, I'm going to show that it, it comes about because we're in, both sides are asking two completely different questions. Um, the problem that the limited atonement people argue against the unlimited is that if Christ died for all men, why aren't all men saved? And if you respond to that objection by saying, well, it's because they don't believe, they don't receive it, then they say, and I'm not saying this is right, but this is what the answer is, they say, well, then if Jesus Christ's atonement doesn't result in salvation of every man, then Jesus Christ's atonement is not complete. It's it's something that is partial, it's only potential, and then must be supplemented by some meritorious act of man. So here you have the complete and finished work of Christ for all men, and then to that we add this little thing called faith. And faith, they claim, becomes a meritorious additive. So now God and man together are involved in salvation. And that's the the argument. I hope to clarify what's wrong with that statement a little bit later. But uh, what I guess we're saying here is, if you hold to the limited atonement, I think, as Debbie points out, you feel there's something something not like the God that I know Scripture reveals him to be here. But if you go to the unlimited atonement without discernment, you you can wind up in universalism you're not careful or you wind up with, this, with the atonement doing only part of the work and then man has to come along and add to it sort of with his, with his agonizing repentance and this and that and all the rest of the promises he makes God and, and so on meritorious works or in the Catholic tradition uh, that we merit the merit of Christ by doing things in our church mass and so forth and um, so that's, that's where people coming from in this, this debate. Um, it's sad, but it has split churches, and I, I just that's why I say I'm spending time on this because in Harford County, it's been responsible for more than one church split. Uh, and I, I hope that, that that shouldn't have to happen. It shouldn't have to happen. Um, but if we're, the safe way to approach it is to say what the verses say. It says that he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. So there is a universal element in the atonement. It's unquestionably universal. Why did God... The, the Great Commission isn't go out and preach to the elect. It says, go out and preach to the whole world. So there's a universal going out to all men. I think if you'll, if you'll think with me for just a moment in the Old Testament, back before Abraham, God worked with the whole human race. Remember, we had the Noahic Bible, we had Cam and Sham and Japheth, and God revealed Himself to all those people. Then what happened when He called Abraham? See, here's a picture of election now. Why did God call Abraham and not Joe Smith? Why did he call Abraham and not um, Richard? Oh, I don't know. Because he designed history that way. Don't ask me. But he designed Abraham, and what was he trying to accomplish when Abraham was called from Ur of the Chaldees? When he was called out. Why did God, as it were, when he called Abraham out, he basically turned his back on the rest of the world. I'm not going to work with you anymore. Heck with you people. You've got your Tower of Babel, you've got your one world government, you've got all this, you got, hey, forget it. But was Abraham called out to form a people that would stay within themselves? What were the three promises to Abraham? Land, a seed, and what was number three? Worldwide blessing. Yeah. So whatever God was doing in this narrow, limited work with Abraham. It, had, it was to have repercussions on the whole world. And if you can think about the cross that way, uh, it, 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 you come to these questions and ask yourself, am I asking the right question here? So a, a hint that helps is, are we talking about the extent of the atonement? Or are we talking about what God's intentions were in the atonement? Is one side looking at one word and the other side looking at another word? And they appear to be asking the same question, but really not. This side is looking at what God intended to do. And this side is looking at the extent of what he is doing. These are the things I want you to think about as we come into this. Because as Christians, we shouldn't sit here and, and fight about this kind of a problem. Uh, I've long thought this is the sort of kind of problem that I think is a fake problem. That's my personal approach to this thing. And it's caused because we get crusaders on both sides of this thing and they just they take a truth and they get rid of everything else and then that becomes the holy grail. And then this group gets this group. And then we, and then we start flacking each other here over this. And I just think it's unnecessary. So I will attempt, in the next two to three weeks that we meet, I will attempt to show that, yes, the atonement is unlimited in its sufficiency. Um, It renders all men savable. It has a universal impact. It's the basis for the missionary outreach and the Great Commission. And then I will show that the cross, obviously, when history is over and said and done... Has been, sell, has been effective in a positive, saving way to those who believe. But it has also been effective on those who don't, in this sense, that those who do not believe at the end of history, candidates for the population of hell, that those men and women have been changed by the cross of Christ. They've been changed in that they are now in judgment, not because of their sins, per se, but they are now, their legal status is, I am being judged because I turned against the God who offered me salvation. So the cross, what I want to get away from is the idea, and you get this through what I call impotent evangelistic uh, sicky sentimentalism Um, would you please accept Jesus kind of thing like Jesus you know we have to beg people to accept Jesus now there's a compassion of course there's a compassion to people to win them to Christ and it's a lot of hard work try it sometimes Um, it's not easy being a missionary a personal missionary um In our society, it's not easy just to get the gospel straight, leave alone being a missionary. But here we are. The cross goes forward. Here is the gospel, and it comes to this person. Now, it has the power to bring them to Christ, or it has the power to repel them. But after this encounter, they have been changed so that the gospel far from being oh won't you please accept Jesus kind of thing it's far it's a commanding power of God that says here is my son what do you do with him and you can't be neutral now who has the agenda God has the agenda and now he puts this on and, and you know the boats leaving the dock now you know, you now now what are we going to do? Bleh, say, that's what's going to happen. So the gospel and the work of the cross is a divider of men. It damns and it saves, and that's the theme of the Ark. There were people excluded from the Ark when the door shut. And they were judged. And they were judged not just because there was water. They were in the water because they rejected the Ark. So that's what we're trying to grapple with in all this is to see come out I hope with a very potent picture of what evangelism based on the cross of Christ is all about. It's a dividing word. It's, it's very sobering to realize this. It's a dividing word for all people. So that's uh, that's where we're going to head. And um, I'll have a hope have a Merry Christmas and. Um, Godly Christmas, should say, and uh, I'll see you on the twentieth.